Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and welcome to another episode of Insidious Inspirations. Before we dive into this week's episode, I want to tell you about a special bonus episode we have coming up soon for our patrons. At the end of this month, we'll be releasing about a 90-minute long uh, cryptid discussion between me and uh, our hosts and our writers, uh, Nicole Goodnight, Addison Peacock, and Henry Galley. Uh, and it's a fun little experience. We talk about movies, our favorite monsters, um, and the terror that is the blob. Since it's our first bonus episode and we're still kind of experimenting with the format, uh, it'll go up on our Patreon first, and then it'll go up on our public feed uh, the following week as a special Thursday episode. So keep your eyes peeled for that, uh, and if you like it, please let us know and we'll do more. But without further ado, this week's episode. As the audience sat in a Texarkana movie theater on December 17th, 1976... Listening to the click of the projector and the anxious breathing of their fellow filmgoers, they were treated to a chilling introduction. The text that preceded the horrors sure to follow promised, The incredible story you are about to see is true. Where it happened and how it happened, only the names have been changed. What followed was the premiere of Charles B. Pierce's schlocky, gory horror film, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Only to the people of Texarkana, gripping the arms of their seats with white-knuckled hands, this was no ordinary night at the movies. It was a fictional reimagining of a nightmare that, 30 years prior, had been all too real for the panicked citizens of the area. In a move that would draw heavy controversy in several attempted lawsuits, Pierce and screenwriter Earl E. Smith had based the film on true, horrific events. In 1946, the region between Arkansas and Texas was torn apart by a series of brutal attacks, all attributed to the same unknown assailant. The violence was unprecedented, terrifying, and would capture the imagination of the nation long before it was ever adapted for the screen. Suddenly, people could not trust their neighbors, feared for their safety whenever they were alone at night, and saw danger around every corner. This is the story of the Phantom Killer, and the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. Texarkana is a border town straddling the line between Texas and Arkansas. Technically, it's made up of two cities that share a name, one in each state. But when horror came to the town on one side of the border, both cities were brought together by a collective held breath, the fear of what would come next. The nightmare began on February 22, 1946. It started with the key ingredients found in dozens of campfire stories and urban legends. A young man and a young woman, parked together in a car on a dark, deserted road called Lover's Lane. Mary Jean Larry and her boyfriend James Hollis had gone out to catch a movie together and, not wanting to go home just yet without a private moment together, had decided to stop at a popular spot for a bit of romance. They could relax and enjoy each other's company here, away from prying eyes or patrolling police cars. Of course, that also meant that if danger were to strike, there would be no one around to hear them scream. As they settled in, letting everything melt away until it felt like they were the only two people in the world, their tender moment was shattered by the blinding beam of a stranger's flashlight, shining through the window of the car. James rolled down the window, preparing to placate a police officer going about his rounds with a promise to head straight home. Instead, he found himself looking down the cold barrel of a gun, brandished by a man in a white mask. 
He barked orders at the couple, telling them to step out of the car. At first, James refused until the man said, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. Trembling, they complied. Mary Jean promised the stranger that neither of them had any money to give him, and James opened his wallet, waving the proof at the robber. He wouldn't hear it, and insisted they were lying. After they climbed out of the car, the masked man demanded that James remove his pants, presumably so he could check his pockets. Terrified, he complied, but before he could hand them over, the stranger hit him hard in the head with the butt of his gun. James collapsed on the ground in a heap, and Mary Jean screamed, afraid that she was next. To her shock, the attacker looked at her and told her to run, so she did. Running away as fast as she could, heart leaping into her throat as she heard the footfalls of the masked man gaining behind her, he had told her to run, not out of mercy, but so he could chase her down. He caught up to her and assaulted her before she was able to flee again and make it to a nearby house. She pounded on the front door, waking the residents inside, and tearfully begged to use their phone. Seeing how distressed she was, they let her in to call the police. Sheriff Bill Presley received the call that night from Mary Jean, informing him of the bizarre, harrowing events that took place at Lover's Lane. He and three officers arrived on the scene, and Mary Jean and James were taken to the hospital and questioned. At first, the sheriff blamed Mary Jean's estranged husband for the attack, assuming he wanted revenge on the woman divorcing him, but he had an airtight alibi that placed him far from the crime scene that night. Left without any other leads, Sheriff Presley wrote the whole thing off as a bizarre, terrible, isolated incident and did not investigate further. He had no idea what a mistake that was or what further horrors were yet to come. Though Mary Jean and James were traumatized by the attack, they had escaped the masked man with their lives. Others would not be so lucky. One month after the first attack, a father and son were driving down a quiet street when they saw a parked car with what appeared to be two young people sleeping in the front and back seats. As the man approached the car, he saw bloodstains all over the interior of the vehicle and realized that the couple was not slumped over out of exhaustion. They were dead. He immediately called 911 and first responders were dispatched to the scene. By the time the police arrived, word had spread of the tragedy and a crowd of onlookers was waiting on the street for some kind of answer as to what had happened. They swarmed around the car, packed so closely the officers could barely get in to inspect the vehicle themselves. Despite the chaos, the investigators were able to determine the details of what had happened, and they were nothing short of horrendous. The couple, Polly Ann Moore and Richard Griffin, had been shot in the back of the head, execution style. Griffin was on his knees in the front seat, his head resting on his hands, his pants pulled down with the pockets turned inside out. Moore was face down in the back seat, her purse open and the contents rifled through. Most troubling, there was a great deal of blood on the outside of the vehicle as well as inside, suggesting that the two were shot while standing outside of the car. Then, once they were dead, their killer had positioned their bodies the way that they were found. Like Mary Jean and Richard, these new victims had been out on a date the night they were attacked. Also like Mary Jean and Richard, they had wanted to share an intimate moment alone together in the parked car on an empty street. There were too many similarities between the two couples to ignore. This seemed to be the work of the same violent masked man. Unable to handle the investigation alone, Sheriff Presley called on the help of the Texas Rangers, who had access to better crime scene training as well as a crime lab in Austin. Ranger Jimmy Greer was sent to help and identified the murder weapon as a 32 caliber automatic pistol, most likely a Colt. Meanwhile, rumors began to circulate throughout the area. The salaciously horrible stories of young lovers being brutalized passed around like a game of frightened telephone. 
The people of Texarkana held their collective breath, wondering if, or more likely when, the killer would strike next. Less than one month later, they got their answer. On the morning of April 14th, Bessie Brown awoke into one of the most horrible realizations the mother of a teenage girl can have. Her daughter had not come home last night. Betty Jo, 15, had been out playing a saxophone gig at the local VFW, but had not returned after the performance ended. Bessie's husband Clark wrote her off as worried and unfounded, reminding her that Betty Jo had planned to stay over at a friend's house that night. Still, she insisted that he call the girl's family and see where Betty Jo was. He humored his wife and made the call. By the time he hung up, there was a heavy sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach. Betty Jo had never arrived at her friend's house to sleep over. No one had heard from her since yesterday. While Betty Jo's family was beginning to fear the worst, their fellow Texarkana residents were discovering another body. A family driving down the road at 6 a.m. spotted the limp body of a young man lying on the side of North Park Road. He was wearing a light, long-sleeved shirt, his arms and hands in front of him, and his legs sticking out into the dirt road. Sheriff Presley arrived on the scene and, after finding the victim's wallet, was able to identify him as Paul Martin. He had been shot a gruesome four times in the back of the neck, the shoulder, the right hand, and finally, his face. As he inspected the surrounding area, Sheriff Presley came across Martin's car, abandoned with its keys in the ignition. As he was taking a closer look at the car, Sheriff Presley spotted something curious on the ground, a small black date book. Without thinking, he picked it up and slipped it into his pocket, breaking the usual protocol for crime scene investigation by keeping it to himself. He and his team also discovered 32 caliber shell casings near the car, matching the weapon used in the previous killings. Paul's murder was disturbing enough on its own, but as word of his death made its way around town, the police became aware of another chilling detail. Paul Martin had been the last person to see the missing Betty Jo Booker alive. His fate painted a grim portrait of what might have kept Betty Jo from coming home. With the help of the Texas Rangers and a locally placed FBI agent, Sheriff Presley led the citizens of Texarkana in a search party, who combed the area looking for Betty Jo. Bessie Brown's worst fears were realized when the search party found Betty Jo's body, just under two miles away from Paul's. Unlike previous victims, she was fully clothed, still wearing her buttoned coat, lying on her back with her right hand in her pocket. At first glance, it looked like she had simply fallen asleep there on the ground, but a closer look revealed her cause of death. Two gunshot wounds, one to the chest, piercing her heart, and one through her left cheek. Whoever had pulled the trigger had done so at point-blank range. As Martin and Booker's families were trying to mourn the sudden loss of their loved ones, all of Texarkana was abuzz with one question. Who was the killer? The Texarkana Gazette gave the mysterious murderer his first nickname with their headline, Phantom Killer Eludes Officers as Investigations of Slayings Proceeds. The collective heart rate of the town rose day by day as a sense of dread mounted. The local hardware stores sold out of guns and ammunition and couldn't keep enough deadbolt locks and screen door braces in stock to meet demand. All anyone could write about, talk about, think about was when the next body would turn up. The Phantom Killer may have just been a man, but he was haunting the entire town. On May 3, 1946, the killer struck again. This time, however, there was no flashlight beam cutting through a darkened window, no masked man turning on the side of a dirt road. It began instead on a 500-acre farm, as Virgil and Kate Starks were relaxing after a hard day's work. Kate was already in bed waiting for her husband to join her as soon as he finished reading in the front room. Suddenly, Kate heard the sound of something shattering. 
When her husband didn't shout to her and tell her what the sound had been, she got up to investigate. She found Virgil, still sitting in his armchair, slumped over dead with blood dripping down from a wound in his neck. The window just in front of him was broken, responsible for the noise she had heard. There, in the glass, she could see three bullet holes. Someone had stood there just outside her home and had shot her husband in the back of the head. Kate scrambled for the telephone, ready to call the police, but before her fingers could dial the number, the crack of gunfire and clatter of glass shards hitting the floor rang out as the killer shot her twice in the face. The shots missed any vital organs, and Kate ran to the bedroom to look for the gun her husband had hidden there in case of emergencies. As she tore the room apart looking for it, wiping away the blood that kept trickling into her eyes and blurring her vision, she suddenly heard a heavy thumping sound in the splinter of wood. The killer was breaking down the door, preparing to come in after her. With no other option, Kate took a chance and made a break for it, running out of the front door while her attacker was busy trying to force his way in through the back. Running as fast as her legs could carry her, she sprinted across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. She rapped on the door and cried out, but no one answered and the windows were dark. No one was home. She turned down the street and kept running, bare feet slapping against the dirt road. Finally, she made it to a neighbor's house where she gasped out the words, Virgil's dead, before falling to the ground. Her neighbor, A.V. Prater, fired a rifle into the air to get the attention of another neighbor, Elmer Taylor, who had a car. Taylor and the Prater family piled into the car with Kate and rushed her to the hospital. Once Kate was safely in a doctor's care and able to be questioned by police, officers traveled to the Starks' farm to see just what had happened. There, they found a truly nauseating scene. In Kate's absence, the killer had walked through the front room, dipping his hands in Virgil's pulled blood and wiping his bloodied hands all over the walls and furniture, leaving gory handprints throughout the once-happy home. Though they were able to quickly secure the crime scene on the inside of the house, a sudden influx of additional, less careful officers tramped all over the exterior of the house and completely erased the killer's tracks. The bloodhounds brought to the farm to follow the killer's trail couldn't pick up a scent, either, leaving a single set of fingerprints from the inside of the house, the print from a size 10 shoe just outside the window, and a flashlight dropped on the ground as the only usable evidence. Not only did the police not have much to go on, it was uncertain whether or not this latest killing was even the work of the Phantom. The M.O. was noticeably different, targeting a married couple that had been together for years and established themselves as pillars of the community. They hadn't been attacked on a lover's lane, but gunned down in the supposed safety of their own home. Perhaps the Phantom had decided to switch things up, or perhaps there were actually two killers tearing their way through Texarkana. Whatever the case was, it didn't really matter. The damage was done and the tensions boiling in the community ever since the very first attack were finally about to spill over and erupt into nothing short of mass hysteria. Up next, we dig into the flurry of investigation, rumors, and vigilante activity that flooded Texarkana after the murders began. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. After the attack on the Starks' farm, the constant fear and uncertainty whipped the public and authorities alike into an absolute frenzy. As local police and federal investigators brought in hundreds of suspects for questioning, the townspeople locked themselves away in their homes, unwilling to risk their lives by going out after dark. Some especially desperate and creative citizens took to setting up booby traps around their houses, 
An article in the June 1946 issue of Life magazine described one of these homemade security systems. A blanket was nailed over a glass door next to a table that was teetered on an ashtray, which would fall over if the door was opened. When the table teetered, it would also spill loose nails onto tin trays, and pots would smash against vases on the floor, which would wake up Mr. and Mrs. Rochelle, who kept a rifle next to their bed. There wasn't much else they could do as they waited for the police to find an answer. The case's reputation had reached far beyond the local cops and Sheriff Presley, drawing in Miller County Sheriff W.E. Davis, the Arkansas State Police, and the FBI. The public face of the investigation, however, became Manuel Lone Wolf Gonzalez, a Texas Ranger captain who drew scrutiny for his showmanship, numerous press conferences, and controversial tactics. In an attempt to lure the Phantom out from hiding, Gonzalez would place teenage volunteers in parked cars at night, seemingly alone, while officers watched from a distance. As the clock kept ticking and the investigation continued to flounder, the public became increasingly restless. Rumors circulated claiming that the killer had already been caught and was being held at the county jail in secret. Others began seeing the phantom everywhere, down every darkened street, around every corner, and even in the faces of their own neighbors. They called the cops over an appearance from the mailman on their front lawn, a drunk stumbling home from the bar past an open window, a car parked too long at the end of the street. Pressure was mounting, tip lines were filling up, and the sheriff's deputy himself was nearly shot by a young woman while he was patrolling a lover's lane one night. Then, in July, Detective Tackett arrested a man by the name of Yowl Swinney. Tackett had been investigating stolen cars in connection with the Griffin Moore murders, and tracked down a car that had been reported stolen, then abandoned at the scene of the killings. Swinney's wife Peggy came to pick the car up and Tackett arrested her. She had quite a story to tell. Her husband, she claimed, was the phantom killer. Her story was convincing, including details such as the location of items the killer had taken from his victims and then discarded. Things that it was unlikely for a random civilian to know. But there were also holes in her account, inconsistencies that fell apart under a closer look. With barely any evidence aside from an admittedly unreliable confession, the officers worked to verify the details of Peggy's story. The holes only got bigger and more undeniable. On the night of the Booker Martin murders, the Swinney couple had been sleeping in their car under a bridge in San Antonio, hundreds of miles from the crime scene. Swinney did time in prison for car theft, but was never charged with murder. Over the years, other possible suspects cropped up. A college freshman who died by suicide in 1948 confessed to several of the murders in his note. However, no concrete details connected him to any of the victims, and a friend of the deceased provided detectives with an alibi. An Air Force machine gunner claimed to have fallen into a fugue state and woken up after the Starks' murder, with his rifle missing, but his story was found to have no basis in fact. Law enforcement looked into Betty Jo Booker's saxophone salesman, an escaped German prisoner of war, an unknown hitchhiker who carjacked a man with a pistol, a taxi driver, and several prominent members of the community, but nothing concrete ever turned up. As the investigation petered out, so too did the hold that the Phantom Killer had on the Texarkana region, and the nation at large. Whether he moved on to a new town, was killed, or was simply through with his reign of terror, the Sparks murders were the last attack officially attributed to the masked killer. There was no grand arrest, no satisfying conclusion, no sense of justice done. It simply stopped, as suddenly as it all had begun. The Moonlight murders had come to an end. In spite of years of effort, speculation, and a community determined to take justice into its own hands, the Phantom Killer was never found. The person who terrorized Texarkana for those awful months was never unmasked. Now, so many decades later, 
it is unlikely they ever will be. Whoever the killer was, they are likely long dead and the truth buried with them. Nearly 80 years after a young couple in love had their lives upended by a shocking act of cruelty, Texarkana remains a little bit haunted. Not by a ghost, but by a phantom. Tonight's writer was Addison Peacock. Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight. Our editor and musician was Danny Sweet. And I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah. Our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit www.insidious.show.